If you studied ahead this week, then you know that these are some potentially confusing verses. I grappled with them for a long time. What in the world does that mean? So maybe there'll be some clarity tonight. I hope so. Let's start with verse 14 in chapter 5 of 1 John. And this is teaching us how to pray. These are principles of prayer. We'll just do a couple topics this evening. 14 says, Now this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. Do you see the first point here is that we should pray according to the will of God. This is about Christians. This is about you and me. It's about believers having confidence that the Lord hears us and that when we pray according to his will, he answers our prayers. John touched on this subject, if you go back just a couple chapters, to chapter 3, verse 22. And he said, And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And so now he returns to the subject of prayer and and the Lord granting what we ask for in a more in-depth way, and he gives us some more explanation. This confidence that you and I are to have in prayer, it's not confidence in ourselves. It's confidence in our Savior. It's confidence in our Lord. And it's us learning to live under the umbrella of God's will, that whatever we ask would be according to what he desires, not according to what we desire. The Apostle John was in the garden of Gethsemane when Jesus was praying before Jesus went to the cross. He was there. And he heard Jesus pray that night in agony as he was approaching the cross. He heard what Jesus said. Jesus said, if possible, as he prayed to the Father, let this cup pass from me. Jesus was saying to his Father, if there's another way for me to save these people, if there's another way for me to save them, then let the cup pass, the cup representing the cross, the cup representing the wrath of God, the cup representing the suffering. So Jesus is saying, if it's possible, is there another way except through the cross. So John was also there to hear Jesus say, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. So Jesus prayed according to the will of the Father. And Jesus, he's our everything. He's our model. He's the one that we look to. John writes saying to us that our prayers and our petitions should be according to the will of God. Now, since Jesus surrendered his will to the Father, Shouldn't you and I do the same thing in the way that we pray? That we definitely should. Is there a greater trial? And maybe you're in a trial right now. Is there a greater trial than the cross? You're going through something and, and you know what you want. Usually it's relief. It's an, it's, a, it's an answer to the problem. It's for him to come and solve it, for him to, to make it better, for him to fix what seems like it, it can't be fixed. But something Greater than the cross? No. We should submit everything to God's will. Is there someone greater than Christ? If the, if the Lord prays according to the will of God and he submitted to the Father, we definitely should too. Now there's a sad, sad practice in the church today and it's where people tell God what to do 
instead of the reverse, where God is leading, God knows, and we're under his will. It's a wicked practice, and it's a common corruption. It's a really dangerous precedent, and it misleads a lot of people. And the worst thing is that it misleads people in the name of God. People think it's from God because it's, it's said by people who, who claim Christ. Don't fall for any supposed leader that tries to boss God around. Sometimes it's called name it and claim it. All I need to do is name what I want and claim what I want. And because I'm a child of God and because it says that he does whatever I'll ask, then I'm going to automatically get whatever I name. Now, this is a pleasing practice. Do you understand why it would be pleasing to hear those words? Well, I know healing's going to happen. I know relationship restoration is going to happen. I know material prosperity is going to happen. I know God wants you to have the job. I know he's going to give it to you. I know he wants you to have that person that you want to marry, the house you want, the health you want, the money you want. Doesn't that sound pretty appealing? It's like false advertising, right? And people fall for, yes, this sounds great. I love this doctrine. But such a person presumes to know the will of God instead of telling the Lord that we are submitted to whatever his will is. And we learn that here in verse 14. Ask anything according to his will. That's the way we're to pray. And often such a person who's misusing prayer is really declaring themselves to be a prophet, aren't they? Like, I, I, I know what God's going to do, and that's a really strict judgment to place yourself under. And oftentimes such people, they're just wolves, preying upon the flock, making claims that cannot be substantiated, claims that can't be proven. They're not of the Lord. Those are charlatans saying something's going to happen. There's no way to really prove it. So please listen to the word of God. We should always pray according to his will. Yes, we should make our requests known unto God. The scriptures tell us that we should. They also say that because we ask not, we have not. But we should ask according to the will of God. doesn't mean that we ask for, for just our desires. Ask God for the righteous desires of your heart. John was there when one of the disciples asked Jesus to teach them how to pray. That was in Matthew chapter 6. And what did Jesus say? When you pray, pray like this. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Thy will. This is how Jesus prayed, and this is how Jesus taught his disciples to pray according to his will. Now, I know that thy and my rhyme, and they, they, it sounds kind of like, my will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You can just kind of slip it in there. But they're drastically different, aren't they? Like what I want apart from God is really messed up. I don't know what's good for me. I think I do sometimes. So we're submitting the my to the thy, the will of God. So those who know the book of 1 John, those who know the Lord's Prayer, those who are familiar with how Jesus prayed before his death in the garden, don't be duped. Don't be wowed by a person that says they're guaranteeing something in prayer. Now, there's a reason if you turn back to John chapter 4, 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, that he wrote this. Look at it. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Many people, it's not like there are just a few, 
They're in the pulpits, but they're also among people. Sometimes they're in so-called official positions of leadership, and sometimes they're right there among the flock, the speaking, flattering words that, that maybe we like to hear, but just aren't true. So be a person of prayer, a person that understands submission to God's will. We're the children of God. We're called little children often in this book. Don't be a bratty little kid that insists upon their will. Be a, a, a child that says, Father, I'm, I'm here to do what you want me to do. That's who we're supposed to be submitting to the will of God. So pray that way. Now that we have that kind of clarity, we move into a couple of verses that are not near as clear. Verse 16 and 17. If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death, and I do not say that he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin not leading to death. So I'm taking away from this an important point, although we'll attempt to understand what the word is saying here in these two verses. A second point, pray for those who are sinning. That's, that's really important, and we'll get into to why it's important. Difficult to be certain about everything that these verses mean. There are many different interpretations, and some of them I'm not even going to cover. There are a couple, there's at least one interpretation that says that the people or the person that's spoken of in verse 16 isn't really a brother, that they're a so-called brother, and that John's using that term brother loosely to mean like my fellow man or something like that. I just, I'm just not seeing how that could be the case, so I'm not going to unpack that interpretation. If you want to talk about it because you've studied it, I would be happy to. I, just, I, I don't think it's a very good one. Uh, another interpretation is that the life and the death mentioned here in these two verses, verse 16 and verse 17, is in reference to eternal life and eternal death. Is that what John is writing about? You see a brother, he sins, but it's not a sin leading to eternal death. God's going to give him eternal life if we ask. But there is a sin that leads to eternal death, and I'm not saying you should pray about that. Is it talking about heaven or hell? Is it talking about eternal life or eternal death? Now, that would fit the context of the book, right? Because if you back up, just go to 511, 1 John 511, and this is a testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son, who has, he who has the Son has life, he who does not have the Son of God does not have life. So it's clear that oftentimes in this book, when John says life, he means eternal life, right? And sometimes in this book, when he says death, he means eternal death. He means condemnation. He means being damned. So let's, let's walk through this. If this interpretation, if you can hang with me, just tell me what you think it means, Eddie. I can't do that. It's, I, I, let's go through this. So there's a brother. That's what it says, right, in 16. I'm going to take God at his word that this person is a Christian. They're under the lordship of Jesus Christ. They've called him Lord. They're living for him. But now he's sinning. That fellow Christian is sinning, but it's not a sin that leads to death. So if we follow this interpretation, so it's not a sin that's going to condemn him. It's, it's forgivable. We'll put it that way. It's able to be forgiven. We should pray for him, right? And the Lord will give him life. But then I, I stop and I ask, like you probably do, 
but doesn't this brother already have eternal life? And if it's, if it's not a sin, well, he already has eternal life because, he's, because he has the son, because he believes in the son. And if it's not a sin leading to eternal death, then why does he need to have eternal life given back to him again? Do you see what I'm saying about that? You're nodding your heads, I think you are. Okay, so if we stick with this line of reasoning, that life is eternal life and that death is eternal death, go to verse 17. Verse 17 could be talking about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which is known as the unforgivable sin. If you blaspheme the Holy Spirit and that's your final rejection of Jesus Christ because the Holy Spirit is the one who woos you and draws you to believe in Jesus, and if you finally and completely rejected Jesus as Lord, then you can't be forgiven. It's the only unforgivable sin, so, so to speak. So if that interpretation is correct, I can see what 17 means, but I would still have a lot of a struggle, struggle understanding 16. Now, quite a few interpreters, pastors, teachers, commentators, theologians have this view. I, just, I don't see how it's con- consistent within the context of, of verse 16. Why does that brother need life if he's a brother he shouldn't need it and then if he committed a sin that doesn't lead to death why do you need to pray and would God give him life so that's another one if you want to talk about it more uh, I'm open to talk about it if you studied it how about this interpretation that the life and the death spoken of here are on this earth not eternal life but life and death here on the earth So you see a fellow Christian, are you still with me? And that fellow Christian sins. But it's it's not a sin leading to death in this life. You pray for them and the Lord restores their life, meaning he forgives them, he cleanses them from all unrighteousness. He desires to forgive us when we stumble. Repentance isn't always accomplished because the hearts of men are evil. But you see this Christian, they they stumble, you pray for them, the Lord restores them, forgives them. And then you go to verse 17, there is a sin that leads to death. So that means, if this interpretation is correct, that there's a sin or that there are sins that lead to the punishment of death in this life, that God disciplines some people, some brothers and sisters even, when they sin unto death. Do you think that that could possibly be true? Gordon says, yes, it could possibly be true. Let's think about it in, in terms of the word. Of, if this is talking about death and life in this life, let's, let's go through the word of God. How about Ananias and Sapphira? Acts chapter 5. They're a part of the early church. Ananias comes in to Peter and he lies and says that he's giving the whole sum of the real estate money to the church. And God strikes him dead. And then his wife comes and repeats the same lie. And the scriptures say they weren't just lying to Peter, but that they were lying to the Holy Spirit. And she too was struck down dead. So is that a sin leading to death? I also think about 1 Corinthians chapter 11 
where we often read of the Lord's Supper, read about communion. So I think you, you probably remember these verses. It's 11.29. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep, meaning that they've died. So the unworthy reception of communion where you just disregard the body and the blood of the Lord, there were those within the Corinthian church who were sick in their bodies. They had physical infirmities because of their sin. And then the scriptures go on to say that they, there were even some who died. Or it doesn't say, it says many actually is the word. So many people in Corinth had died because they disregarded the body and the blood of the Lord. Now, this isn't a really comfortable interpretation, but I, I do think there's, I do know that there's some evidence in the Bible of a sin leading to death. So this would be a sin leading to death in this life, that the Lord actually disciplines some believers. I was going to give you a quiz on this before, but I was nice and I didn't do it. That, that this actually, it does happen. I even went back to Moses. Did you think about Moses? And Moses is in the wilderness and he's leading the children of Israel. And he's supposed to speak to the rock and God's going to open the rock and water, water's going to gush forth to the children of Israel because they're thirsty. Now, there are a bunch of complainers. They're really annoying. And Moses decides to take out his anger. He doesn't punch the wall. He whacks the rock a couple times with his staff. And he wasn't supposed to do that. He wasn't following God's directions. And because of that, the Lord told him, you're going to die and never go into the promised land. And then there's a record of this, if you want to read about it in Deuteronomy 3, maybe you already did. And Moses asked the Lord, are you really going to punish me in this way? Am I really going to die and not get to go into the promised land? And the Lord says, speak not more unto me of this matter. God says, don't pray about this anymore. I've already disciplined you. And doesn't that kind of line up with what we're reading here? Like when it says about this sin leading to death, I don't say pray about this. You kind of, what, what does that mean? So think about this in the context of, I know this is getting a little, it's not weird, it's on track. Ananias and Sapphira, Ananias is struck down dead. And then his wife comes in and she tells the same lie. And he says, the feet of those who took your husband are at the door. Wait, wait, wait. Let's stop and pray for her. Maybe she'll... No, at that point, it's over, right? God has already, in his judgment, in his just judgment, decided that he's going to punish her with this sin because she's committed sin leading to death. Now, the comforting thing about all this is that we are supposed to pray according to the will of God. So how do you know when a person has committed a sin that leads to death? Like somebody's sick, and you're like, no, I think it's a sin that leads to death, so I'm not even going to bother praying for them. I mean, I'm looking at this, and it doesn't expressly say, these are the kind of conversations you would have to have with me if you lived in my house. It doesn't expressly say that you can't pray for them, but he said, I do not pray, say that you should pray for that. He's saying, pray for the sin that's not leading to death, because I'll give him life. But think about this. How do you know when a person has committed a sin that leads to death? That's a judgment that that doesn't belong to us. So you pray according to God's will and say, Lord, can we do this? If this is discipline and you're disciplining them, 
then I, I want the discipline. Have you prayed that way? Maybe not unto death, but for somebody that you love and you know that they're wayward, you see their life, it does not line up with what pleases the Lord. And you pray, Lord, whatever it takes for you to get their attention. <laughs> I mean, think about whatever it takes. That's a lot when you look at, the, at what the word of God says. It's not common, but submit that to God's will. I pray for deliverance from sin, according to 16, but then I can pray and you can pray according to the discipline of God's will. Michelle thought of this one when we were talking about it. Is there a possibility, in, in, when you look at verse 17, that John is saying, don't pray for those who have already died? Because if somebody sins and they're already dead, Ananias is there, he's gone, right? And Sapphire's there, he's already gone. It, it's... We don't think in these terms a lot, but is John saying praying for the dead is, is not something that we do? Now, lo and behold, Michelle brought this up to me, and I went searching, and there are commentators who, who believe that it does refer to this, because when you think about the history of the church, in the first century, there were those, because of the pagan religions around, who were praying for people who were the salvation of the dead within the church. Your loved one is already gone. There's no more breath in their lungs or hearts not beating anymore. And already the false teaching of let's see if we can do something for them eternally, even though they're already dead. Um, let's see if we can do that. Now, didn't that teaching just take off in the church and get totally out of control? Oh, yes, it did. When you consider that the Catholic Church grabbed on to the whole idea of purgatory and started selling indulgences. Well, your loved ones were already dead, but you can buy their way out of, uh, of, of, see that, this big warning, we don't pray for the salvation of dead people here. We pray for the salvation of living people. We understand that once a person is, isn't living anymore, that they either chose to believe upon Jesus or they didn't. And and you'll hear people pray sometimes, and it's totally erroneous. Oh, Lord, um, they're gone, but we just pray for that you'd have mercy on them. Well, it's, it's already a done deal at this point. So let me read you the prayer from the Eastern Orthodox Church. Such souls as have departed with faith, but without having had time to bring forth first fruits worthy of repentance. So it's a, their practice, one of their prescribed prayers, to pray for people who have died thinking, you know, they haven't had a chance to really bear the fruit of repentance, so now we're praying for your mercy upon them. There, there's a lot of stuff that is misinterpreted from 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 16, and some of the books of the Apocrypha, so it possibly could be talking about that. Let's get to the main application of this. We're often in the situation where we're being prayed for by people that love us because we're sinning. Um, they, they know that we're off track. And one of the best things you can do for somebody that you love, when, when you see them, and you, it says you see a brother, and you see a sister, you see a fellow Christian, and, and you, just, you know, not according to you, but according to God's, God's will and God's word, that the way they're living isn't, just, isn't right. Pray for them. You want those people praying for you. You should value that. And when others are sinning, you should be praying for them. I should be praying for them, knowing that God desires to restore. 
Are we earnest and are we consistent about praying for brothers and sisters who have wandered into sin? Or after it's been a while, is it just like, oh, well, if they're going to turn around, they're going to turn around. If God wants it, then it's, it's going to happen. God's going to do what God's going to do. If it's meant to be, it'll happen. No, that we should be interceding for those who have been sucked into the lies of the enemy, who've been sucked into the world. We say, like, I, I, I'm praying for them, Lord, that you would restore them, that you would bring them life, that you would bring them forgiveness. Even though I'm not entirely sure about the exact meaning of this verse, I know that we need a steady prayer life for those who have wandered into sin, for those who have chosen the life of rebelliousness. And you pray for the people that you love a lot that are in that situation, don't you? Your friends and your family members, those that are close to you, I mean, they're in your mind and in your heart so much, and so you're praying for them. But this isn't just about praying for your loved ones, your family, or the people that are close to you. I look around this room, and, and do you know the person that's the most on Jim's heart? Do you know the person that's the most on Bob's heart? The person that's wandered into sin, and, and it's heavy on them. Are you praying for them? Do you know their name? Are you going to rejoice with them when they return? Rick and Renee, I know who they're thinking about. I know who Gordon's thinking about. Do you know? Is that getting too specific? Or is it like, well, you know, the will of God's going to be done. No, when somebody is far away from the Lord, we're to come before the Lord and say, Lord, call out to them with your tender mercies. Awaken them to what they know, to what they've heard, and bring them back. Restore their life. It's not just for your loved ones. Let, let that be like a, a body of Christ. It's not something that often gets brought up for like a Sunday morning prayer request. You know, if, you're, if your heart's going out, we'll put you on the list, right? If you break your foot, you're on the list. But if your kid backslides, are you going to put that on the list? Sometimes you won't. You just need your brothers and sisters that love you and that love your loved ones to be praying fervently and consistently. I want that for my loved ones, and I know you want it for yours. And that's the application of these verses. That brother and sister, the rebellious lifestyle. Yes, pray for your own, but pray for each other's kids, nephews, nieces, grandkids, friends. Acknowledging before the Lord, like you're, you're the God of grace that saved me. I don't deserve to be right with you, but I, I am. Just because I threw myself upon your mercy. You took me when I was totally lost and opened up my eyes. And so I know you can do it for this person who knows better, for this wandering brother or sister. I know that you can bring them into the fold and that you can awaken them to what your, your spirit is saying to them. Let's be a church that prays that way. Lord, I thank you for your pursuing grace. That you love us so much that you would give your life, but then you don't just sit there and wait for us to realize it. You instead, you're literally the hound of heaven who just doesn't rest. I pray that your church would reflect your heart. 
Lord, that we wouldn't judge in areas that we don't know about, that we would leave the judgment to you, that we would pray according to your will. We know that you're not willing that any should perish. I pray that we would have the heart of the Father. The Father, he's, he's looking afar off for his son to come back again, Lord. That's the heart that I need for, for your lost sheep. That's the heart that we need. It's looking expectantly and then ready to receive them, running to them, falling on them, embracing them. You're here, and that's what, what matters. You've, you've come to the Lord. You've come to his grace once again. That's what matters. I thank you, Lord Jesus, and I pray in your name. Amen.